we started a Judex because we've got Fouillade fever. Yeah. Judex shreds, and then you can watch yeah. the Franju film. It's cool, though. I like mm-hmm. it. It's good to see all those familiar faces. It's nice, like, now knowing all of these actors from the 1910s and just, like, getting excited when they have cameos. <laughs> He's got a stock company. One of the one of cinema's great pleasures is a yeah. fucking stock company, you know? Mm-hmm. People, that's a good, a good topic. Theme. <laughs> <Yep>. Jesus. <laughs> That is a good topic. I mean, yeah, we we did we've done it with all. But like, how would how would it work? I feel like it would have to be the same stock company in both films, probably, right? To give like to a no, not necessarily. It's not controversial to say John Ford (laughs) at a stock company or Robert Altman at a stock company or Quentin Tarantino as a stock company. Clint Eastwood's got a nice stock company. He does. But I was thinking that like the the joy of talking about a stock company would be seeing how the stock company was utilized in two different things like next to each other well here's the key harry dean will have to be in both of the stock companies oh sure that makes sense yeah the policeman isn't there to create disorder the policeman is there to preserve disorder gentlemen get the thing straight once and for all we clear the streets along this route deploy our men and create an impassable barrier a gauntlet if you will he won't have a chance i challenge you to a duel That's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I am one of your hosts, and with me today, as always, is... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts is challenged with present no <laughs> in which one of the hosts is tasked with providing a theme or topic for the week and the other two hosts then have to program a double feature in response to that topic whether it be engaging with it directly or perhaps even bucking up against it just a little bit and uh, this week it was my turn to come up with the topic and I was thinking a lot about um Cormac McCarthy. I've been excited. He's got two new novels coming out this fall that I'm eagerly anticipating. I'm a big fan of his. And so in prep, I started rereading the Border Trilogy. And I I had read him a few years ago, and I had never read the third one. So I, I just finished it actually last night before recording the podcast. And it was very interesting, actually, having read this book and seeing some of the parallels in, in one of the films <laughs> that was um, selected for this week. There's a sort of a remarkable connection between them that I absolutely was not anticipating. But so reading the Border Trilogy, I started thinking about Borderlands and I started thinking about the way McCarthy was exploring the border as this spiritual, mythical space, essentially, and these metaphorical crossings that characters are having as they're traversing back and forth. This specifically, of course, being the border between the United States and Mexico. But I thought more broadly, let's explore borderlands. And that was the topic in general that I had presented to the two of you here. And this is certainly one of the darkest and most bizarre double features i think we've we've ever done on the show and i wouldn't have it any other way 
Marsh brought along um, a film as a little present to me, almost, uh, from one of my favorite filmmakers, one of our favorite filmmakers. Marsh and I have a a long history um, exploring the work of this particular filmmaker. We've talked about it on the pod before. And and Andy brought along a film from a franchise that I'm generally unfamiliar with. Uh, I'll get into more of the specifics of that (laughs) once we start uh, chewing over it, but... My God, uh, what a what a roller coaster to to say the least. So I think we'll start with you, Marsh. Tell us a little bit about the borders we'll be traversing together and uh, the film that you brought along. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, uh, we are indeed uh, super fans of Chinese documentarian Wang Bing and. Uh, I know that neither of us had seen uh, this particular film, and I knew it was about uh, a sort of refugee situation uh, along a border. And I thought, we'll just uh, we'll just go for it, not really knowing uh, much about it other than that. And so uh, the film I chose is Tang from 2016, and this is uh, specifically about the Tang, who are an ethnic group that live in the sort of mountainous border zone between Myanmar and China. And in 2015, there was uh, an armed conflict that broke out between uh, the government forces and the guerrillas in uh, the Kokang region, and this caused uh, many people to flee over the border into China. And so the film is essentially uh, Wang Bing, just as he usually does, uh, sort of just embed himself in this world and in this crossing. And he hooks up with some people and just kind of follows them as they go uh, from the border and into China and then back again, essentially. Well, we'll talk about that, but it is, uh, in in some ways, uh, as people have remarked upon in the things I've read about it, it is you know, maybe one of his more observational films. I mean, all of his films are observational films, but sometimes there's more concrete formal structures that he's sort of playing with. And this feels uh, very unmoored as we're kind of like fleeing this war. We don't know where we are. We don't know, uh, we don't know what's going on. You know, there's a lot of confusion. Um, and we really feel that as in characteristic fashion, Wong just, you know, lives with these people and films them over, I think it was about a a month, and then he uh, said he was forced to stop shooting and then later returned, uh, only to not be able to find the people he was originally with and then filmed with more people, and we can talk about how that works in the film. Wow. so that's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's not 10 hours long. It's only uh, two hours and like 45 minutes or something, or two hours and 20 minutes or something like that. Right? It's like two and a half. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, relatively easily uh, digestible uh, Wang Bing, if I may say so myself. So that's what I chose. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was really shocking to see a Wang Bing film that is sort of centered around an event, you know? It is very observational, but there's, like, actual dramatic propulsion. Like, they're fleeing from something and also sort of returning to something. And I feel like so many of his films are sort of him just witnessing life in front of him without, like, an instigating element. Um, But Andy, the film (laughs) you brought also (laughs) brings with it um, 
in a very intense urgency, I guess we could describe what, what happens in your film. And there is a lot of propulsive events that cause um, some traversing of the border. So what did you bring along? Well, um, I, you know, with your whole Cormac McCarthy spiel last week, (laughs) you know, I really sat on it and, uh, you spoke of it with such, you know, like reverence and you were just really, really excited about it. And I'm a Cormac McCarthy fan myself, um, I, I will admit. Um, but I really just wanted to troll you because of it. I don't know yeah. why. I, you know, you were just so excited about the Border Trilogy and and the romance of it all that I just figured I have to find something to spoil your party a little bit, you know. <laughs> uh, and In addition, I felt like, you know, we've been watching a lot of good movies the past couple weeks, you know, relatively speaking, we've been watching some really, some good stuff, some interesting stuff. So I also wanted to just try to try to bring something to the table that was, was just kind of bad (laughs) in a lot of ways. And so I came up with a very, very, very uh, upsetting movie, but one that I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about today. And that is 2019's Rambo, Last Blood, directed by Adrian Grunberg. So for those who, who don't know, this is the fifth installment in the Rambo franchise, starring the one and only Sly Stallone, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, in this film, Rambo has finally settled down after his long, long road across the many battlefields uh, that the world has known over the last 40-some-odd years. A road that has taken him from the jungles of Vietnam to the mountains of Afghanistan and, I should point out as well, the war-torn region of Myanmar, (laughs) the, the border of Myanmar, China, and Thailand. So, very excited to explore that connection as well later on. But, after all that... Uh, the warrior has settled down into a life of peace and tranquility on his family ranch in Arizona slash Bulgaria. Uh, <laughs> so Rambo, when this film opens up, he's he's finally found a, a sense of peace on this ranch, this family ranch. Uh, he's just a, a, a horse rancher now. And uh, he spends his days, you know, breaking horses and struggling with his PTSD in a series of tunnels he has built under the under the, the ranch lands uh, where he goes to, to, to listen to the doors and battle his inner demons uh, in solitude. Uh, above those tunnels, though, he has uh, two people who mean a great deal to him. And I think that the relationship is a little bit murky, but... Uh, from what I from what I understand, uh, it's not anybody that's necessarily like a blood relative of his. It's uh, it's a a woman and her granddaughter who worked on his father's ranch for many years, and and the the granddaughter has kind of become his sort of sort of surrogate adopted daughter. You know, he sees this young woman, Gabriella as uh, kind of like his, the, the daughter he never had. And one day Rambo is 
is very upset to to discover that Gabrielle uh, wants to go to Mexico to find her long lost deadbeat dad. Rambo, of course, tells her, you know, that is not a good idea. There's a lot of bad hombres down there in the words of, of former President Donald Trump. But, you know, young people are gonna be young people. They're gonna do what you tell them not to do, and she does. She crosses the border. She goes down there to find her dad. And uh, very quickly, I should say, almost instantly, <laughs> she finds herself now uh, swept up by a cartel uh, of sex traffickers. And she has now, uh, you know, become a, a sex slave for this, this nefarious group down there. Sending Rambo once again over the edge into a blood rage, uh, who finds himself now determined to, to himself cross the border and bring her back and kill as many people uh, as possible. Um, Yes, it then, you know, goes where you probably would expect it to go if you're familiar with any Rambo film. Uh, a lot of, lot of, lot of people are going to die in very, very, very gory ways. This is a, yeah, what, what some people have called a, a racist, xenophobic, uh, MAGA revenge fantasy. It's not a very good movie at all, and I, I don't think it's a very fitting way for our uh, for America's greatest lone wolf soldier to to go out. But I really, really just brought this to the table because I wanted to ruffle Ryan's feathers a bit, and I, I so far think I've succeeded in that. So, <laughs> so yes, that's Rambo: Last Blood. Yes, yes. Yeah, normally I would say thank you, Andy, but I don't know. Maybe no thank you this time around. Um, you're, you're not wrong. It is an awful, awful film. Very dreadful. But it it is also a bit fascinating. And I think one of the things I was really struck by was one of the reasons I disliked it so much was because I wish it was almost more offensive to at least make it more interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I almost feel as though as a bit of like right-wing media, it's kind of toothless. And because of that, it feels very banal and, and quite bland at times. But it was interesting also thinking about its relationship to another recent like late style look with a very similar visual sheen. And that's would be Clint Eastwood's Cry Macho, which we've sort of referred to like through osmosis at different points throughout the the series of, of our show. And it's funny that of course, you know, this movie was shot in Bulgaria, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but kind of the like weird, cold digital light, there's something similar to the way that Cry Macho looks. Of course, Cry Macho is very pleasant and, and beautiful at times. Oh, and so this tender and sensitive. <laughs> I mean, I, I wrote in my notes that the Rambo last blood is the evil twin of Cry Macho, sure, you yeah. know, but I mean, I think it to, really is. not, not to interrupt you, Ryan, but like to your point, I also wrote down in my notes, like, like, for all the ways this movie is offensive, the, I think the biggest offense is that it's, like, kind of bland. Mm -hmm. And I do honestly think that, yeah, you know, in more skillful uh, hands or, or many in many parts of the process. Or more perverse hands. Exactly, right? Uh, it, it could have been, been something else anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, like, it sort of speaks to the, the kind of nebulous status of Stallone's political 
beliefs. You know, I mean, he is someone who, uh, you know, describes himself as a, as a Republican, even though he's not a card carrying member of the party, but also at points in Stone's life, he He's donated money to the DNC. He's, he donated to Joe Biden's campaign at a certain point. And it should be pointed out that this project was in development hell for like 10 years. You know, right after the fourth Rambo film, they were like, all right, let's go. Let's do another one. And it, it went through a lot of different scripts and iterations and plans for like, well, what are we going to do for the fifth one? And in 2008, the first draft was... Stallone fighting the cartel. So it was, you know, Rambo dealing with, you know, issues on the border back home in Arizona. So, so for the people who have sort of labeled this as this sort of like, you know, this Fantasia, this violent Fantasia of the Trump era, like this was sort of the plan it's well before violent Fantasia of the American people. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so I think, you know, Stallone himself was like, well, I wasn't, this wasn't about Trump. This wasn't about, you know, his bad hombres thing. This wasn't about that. This was the original plan for what we were going to do. So part of the fun in looking at a, 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 you know, a nightmarish sort of journey that this kind of thing could be is like, yes, like really leaning into it and, and being like, oh my God, every fucking moment of this film is, is a part of like, you know, Trump's, uh, campaign platform for 2020 or something like that. But, but it isn't Stallone thought he was making his unforgiven. <laughs> you know, he, he at times wanted this to be less violent. He wanted it to be more soulful was the word that he used. So, so I think that's part of it, right? I mean, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, I know, but like it is kind of caught in between on a border, if you will, between what it could have been, and sort of like what it is, you know, and and neither really give people, I think, on both sides of the political spectrum, what they might have been expecting or perhaps even wanting, you know? Sure, yeah. I mean, I guess it does have, thinking about it that way, like kind of a wrong place at the wrong time <laughs> type energy to it, a film that was designed in advance, but then kind of brings with it like the moment it comes out it's a kind of impossible to disassociate with the current moment that the film like exists in but it is funny because i've seen so few rambo films i guess i would say i've technically seen the first one in piecemeal to the point like on television to the point where i could say like yeah i've seen all of rambo one but i haven't seen two and three however i have seen rambo and I remembered watching it when it came out because it really scratched an itch for me and my family because that was like the Final Destination era. You know, we like loved watching those movies together. It was yeah. like just sort of perverse. And that movie I remembered, I was so shocked because I had an idea of what the Rambo movies were like and I didn't realize that they were borderline horror movies or at least, again, <laughs> the fourth one is and so is this 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 newest one. <laughs> But yeah, the, the amount of carnage that's on display in Rambo 4 is like grotesque. It's like so surreal and almost cartoonish. And this one was, it rang a little bit differently for me because the weird thing about Rambo Last Blood to me was, 
and I think Andy, you bringing up the fact that Stallone wanted it to be something a bit more soulful does speak to the oddness of the violence that's on display in the film. Because I think that having the family dynamic there, which is from my memory, a bit absent from Rambo four, he's still the lone wolf. Mm -hmm. He's just like in Myanmar, just tearing people up with turret guns. But here, the carnage that's on display in the last like 30 minutes of this movie is so perplexing considering that it's like coming from a place of like personal rage as opposed to the sort of like abstract rage and political rage maybe that's on display in Rambo four. Yeah. It's, it's from one moment to the next, like trying to be something it it's not, you know, and it's on a certain level, like trying to, please a lot of different people in a weird way, you know? I mean, this really does feel like there was just a lot of confusion at the helm in terms of, like, what what they were even really trying to get out of this. There's certain threads that mm-hmm. get introduced that don't get tugged on at all. And then, yeah, when the violence does erupt, you know, the typical kind of Rambo bloodbath finally arrives... It, it, in a strange way, almost doesn't even feel earned. No. You know, it just, it just sort of is here, right? It's, it feels like, okay, this is the only way to get out of this movie at this point. I should also mention that I, I, I don't know if you guys did or not. I'm, I'm assuming you didn't, but I've seen this movie before. So I discovered that there was an extended cut. And so I watched the extended cut just to kind of compare the two. Cause I, you know, the version that we watched is barely 90 minutes. I think it clocks in it. A, nine of that minutes are end credit Rambo highlights reel. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like an 80 minute movie, you know, but the extended cut was 102. So I was like, what, what is it? I was thinking there's probably more violence, you know, they probably toned it down or something like that. No, they didn't. Uh, the violence was was all there. But there's this crazy prologue that was in the extended cut that's not in the version we watched that opens with a massive storm. There's like a big storm on a mountain, right? And it's flooding and there's people, there's hikers who are trapped. And so there's this crazy prologue where Rambo is part of this rescue effort to, to save these hikers who are caught in this like torrential storm on a mountain. And it's like Rambo saving people on a mountain. And, and it's kind of crazy. And I totally understand why they cut that out because again, to your point, Ryan, like Rambo throughout the series has always been presented as this sort of loner, this solitary figure. And so it's, it's crazy for me to even think about him as like a guy that would sort of become a volunteer firefighter or something like that and go rescue people and like work with cops considering his history with law enforcement. So, so yeah, I think too, even there was originally this longer version that was meant to make him this, this like pillar of the community that when they sat down Mm. and they were like, okay, we got to cut that whole 10 minute opening where he's working with, you know, the the national guard to rescue people on a mountain like yeah. the movie is just <laughs> it, it it's it's so so perplexing like what this thing is i mean i think in a, i guess in an effort to try and prescribe maybe what i thought went wrong they just don't seem interested in the idea of who rambo is because when we started the movie 
Molly and I, Molly has never seen any of these. And as it began, she just sort of looked at the screen and said, so who is Rambo? It's a good question. And I started to like try and describe it. And she said, no, no, no. Like, let the movie tell me. <laughs> like, I want number five to tell me who Rambo is. And I said, sure. OK, that's kind of interesting. And the only thing she was really able to suss out from the opening 30 minutes was he's a guy who likes knives and needs to take medication. And I think that had they gone the cry macho route and leaned into that more, there may have been more interesting things on display. Who is this guy? Who is this aging war machine that can think of nothing but like brutality and violence uh, when he's called to present himself like in those moments? I mean, this film really does feel just like an awful Cormac McCarthy adaptation at times. <laughs> <laughs> the, like the worst interpretation you possibly could have of the Border Trilogy. So it was very fitting um, in that sense. I mean, it's no, it's, it's a good question. Like to, to, I guess be even like dive into like what, what this movie is and like, you know, who the fuck is Rambo? Because I, I felt like I needed to kind of dive back into some of the earlier films as well, just to, just to measure his path, like measure his journey, measure the trajectory from first blood to last blood. Uh, and man, like the, the character you know, doesn't have a lot of consistency if you even think about it. And so I, I started looking at it as like Rambo is kind of, to me, the ultimate boomer. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he really is to me like seeing, seeing the journey from first blood to last blood. Like I look at my parents and I look at their generation and I do really feel like he's the perfect representation for like that generation and where they've gone. And I thought the same thing. You know, if you think about First Blood, the, the, the whole point of it is that he's this sort of troubled Vietnam vet, and that movie is very anti-establishment. You know, oh, the yeah. original Rambo was like, cops are bad, war is bad, look what it does, look what we've done, look, what, look, look at the generation that we have destroyed, you know? And he's this kind of like anti-war, uh, broken man, you know, that now lives in a country that's just like fucked up and filled with shitty cops like Brian Dennehy, you know? So if you go from that to, to the subsequent films, right, you start to see the strange rehabilitation of Vietnam. In the second film, he goes back to Vietnam to win this time, you know? Uh, we're, we're deep into Reagan's presidency, and now we're, we're using this figure as a sort of cold warrior, this guy who can go back in and relitigate Vietnam and, and, and say, well, it wasn't all that bad, you know, and the Russians are the real monsters and all this. And then the third film, he gets deployed to Afghanistan to, to actually like go on the offensive against the Soviets and help the brave and gallant Mujahideen, you know? And it's like, man, look at even America's journey from those three films and how fucking wrong we got every single one of those things. And then, yeah, the fourth film that you've mentioned is just like, for some reason, he's in Myanmar, <laughs> you know? It's like, where can we throw Rambo in the middle of the Iraq war? How can we have him fight the Iraq war without having him fight the Iraq war? I guess let's just take him to Burma, yeah. this uh, strange 
sort of facsimile of people's outrage over over atrocities that that aren't happening in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then, yeah, the fifth film now, what is he? He's just this broken down relic of a bygone era that has become a total, like, isolationist dinosaur. You know, the whole point of Last Blood is like, just stay on the ranch. Things are okay on the ranch, but if we leave the ranch, everything's fucked up. And we've learned we can't do anything about it, so we might as well just stay here and just listen to the doors and take our pills and be okay, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it struck me both deliberately and not that this film is actually a, a riff on The Searchers. Um, there's, you know, the obvious parallels and connections of, like, a loved one being kidnapped by, you know, the natives in his mind, right? Uh, and there's so many ways that this is like this paranoid vision is reinforced in the movie. I mean, it's like he goes to Mexico and the puke filter is on immediately, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. it just looks mm. like disgusting and everyone is a creep, you know? Uh, and it really is this fantasy. But like the problem, as you mentioned, is that it doesn't, it doesn't earn... Uh, it, the aspect of of any of like the emotional stuff that it's trying to do, and I was thinking like this is like if in the Searchers, uh, Ethan rides off, and in the next scene he finds Debbie. That's what happens in this movie, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Like he leaves, mm -hmm. he crosses the border, and within five minutes, he's basically found where <laughs> where his niece is. I'm like, damn! It took like ten years for John Wayne to find Debbie, you know, like, and they earn the emotion, you know, of him as, you know, both a savior and a guy who's like not allowed to be in the United States anymore, <laughs> right, you yeah. know? Mm -hmm. uh, but like, yeah, Rambo doesn't have any of that self-reflection, but it really killed me that there's like a, a Fordian style, uh, like grave <laughs> scene towards the end of the yeah. film. And I was just like, you know, so my, my black heart so wounded you know, from, from all this. Yeah. yeah, I was shocked to see that the film was actually reaching for sentiment at times, you know, and I think that going back to this double feature, you know, I, I, I strain a bit to think of ways to connect these films. Maybe we can figure that out a little bit. However, I do think I was trying to figure out what exactly is the biggest difference between these two films. There's so many differences, right? Uh, the list could go on and on. But I think that I was like, what is the biggest one? What separates them the most? And I think it could be the camera. And you saying the puke filter made me think about, <laughs> you know, visually and philosophically what these cameras are doing in both movies. Because one of the most beautiful things about Wang Bing his films in general, and specifically Tong, is the role of the camera and the camera as an observer. And the way that the camera just becomes not necessarily a fly on the wall, but just like a compassionate partner in the journey, you know, because he's never trying to hide the fact that he's there. People are always looking at the camera. He's not trying to interfere with reality in that way. He's just a man who is along for this journey, documenting it, and then seeing how that might be a helpful enterprise. And the camera 
in Last Blood is just this grotesque device that's used to try and pull at our heartstrings in moments of sentiment, trying to have a Fordian graveyard scene, and then at the same time just trying to splatter digital blood in yeah. our faces in like a totally graceless way. Trying to get the money shot. Exactly. Yeah, the, the just at their core, the impulses of both of these films with their cameras are on like total opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I see that. That is definitely a huge difference, but I think you in that kind of hit on what I consider just the biggest difference, which is just like the idea of empathy, uh, for, for, for your subjects, you know, um, mm-hmm. Rambo is supposed to be a guy that's like kind of impossible for us to empathize with. I mean, he's supposed to be, you know, something that's not real. He's supposed to be like the, 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 the boogeyman of war, you know, the Michael Myers of, of combat, right? He's supposed to be so, so far removed from, from reality mm-hmm. that, you know, the spectacle of him is, is, is what, uh, sort of we get lost in, you know, like watch out enemies of America. Cause if you're bad to us, Rambo's going to get you, you know, he's like a myth. And this movie tries to, to make him like a, a realistic figure, but but yeah, I mean, it's like it's 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 empathy for the world. It's it's looking and seeing like what war does to people. And yeah, you could argue that throughout the movies, there's been this sort of, you know, the Rambo movies has been this eye towards that. But no, you know, like war in the Rambo films is a spectacle. It's the show. It's the reason we're all here. And in Wong Bing's film, you know, we just see war in the background war is just this thing like it's it's uh it's a force of nature it's like a hurricane it's it's this thing that's beyond Mm -hmm. the control of any one person it's just this thing that fucks up everybody's lives that it touches and i mean everybody's not just the quote good guys not just the 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 people that we're supposed to quote identify with. Again, this is a conversation we had a little while ago, the difference between identification and, and empathy. And so I think those are for that to me is like the, the, the biggest fucking difference, you know? Yeah. In, in, in the film in, in last blood, when his surrogate daughter says she wants to go to Mexico to find her birth father, his first reaction when she just says, I want to go to Mexico is, why? And he's like horrified. And he's not horrified for any other reason than she's talking about going to Mexico. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he speaks of Mexico immediately as just this place where it's like, if you go there, you're going to get caught as made into a sex slave. It's just like the, the, the boomer dad nightmare of Mexico or, yeah. or going down to the city. Why go to the city? You're just going to get raped and mugged and shot. You know, like there's no understanding of the complexities of the world, the people that live in it and the systems of power that create these these horrible nightmarish scenarios. Yeah, I think, you know, what you're both talking about at the end of the day is, I mean, it's ideological, the obvious differences of these movies, right? (laughs) The ideology, the, the pure ideology of Rambo, you know, this very kind of... Uh, you know, specific perspective, whereas, you know, I don't want to call Wang Bing, uh, you know, like 
this un you know unobtrusive observer or whatever but he he lives in that space of just letting things kind of be right you know and i so again i don't want to say he's not ideological but i mean even the way that you describe the war being presented in tang it is not an abstraction but it is in the background right because we're following mostly women and children who are fleeing men are either fighting or like scouting or working right um but it's there the bombs are dropping in the distance you know and we see yeah the the massive effect it has on everything but uh he doesn't at all get into the specifics of the conflict, you know, or anything like that, that's generally absent from the film. But another connection between the films is that we see lots of characters haunted by their pasts, whether that's the far past Mm. in the case of Rambo, we do get these sort of like intrusions and subjective kind of like, he's having a psychotic break moments, you know, thinking about everything he's been through. And in Tang, there are many bits and pieces of people's stories that we hear and fleeing from the soldiers and the fear they had and the journeys they went through just to get to this refugee camp like everyone's just walking around in a daze going like and the soldiers and then we we ran and then we took the wrong road you know and these people are you know they have to retell this stuff because they're so sort of like haunted by it um and i found that to be yeah you know uh something that these these films had in common like and again i think it's yes war ultimately andy to your point is that specter at work in both films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think there's then an interesting difference between the two films because of that similarity, the way that these people deal with their their past and how they're haunted by it, right? Because it is very communal, as you said in Tong. There are extended sequences of them sitting around the campfire, sharing these stories and sort of carrying each other i mean literally at moments throughout the film people carrying each other across the border and around while rambo is extremely isolationist he's created an underground network of tunnels to deal with his trauma that he won't even let members of his adopted family go inside of um at least the maria the the grandmother he eventually lets his daughter his adopted daughter into the tunnels for her friends to have like a a big party <laughs> down there Dude. to see like the way he's got it all set I up fucking love that because it is so twisted it's so fucking weird yeah. there's he is like he is such a crazy like weird dude and again that's just a tug that like wasn't pulled on hard enough you know where where like his his daughter his I guess we'll just keep calling her his daughter his you know daughter. his fake daughter yeah and she's she's like she just graduated from high school and and they're planning this like you know going away party for everybody to college and she's like yeah we're gonna go over like Cindy's house or whatever you know and he's like why not do it here I should invite him here what bring him over here remember what happened last time you freaked them out why. Because you wouldn't stop staring at them. Oh, no. Yeah, I do that sometimes, but it's not intentional. Show them the tunnels. What? Show them the tunnels. You don't let anybody go in the tunnels. No, but they're your friends, so they're welcome. (laughs) I was like, what in what world would that really be appealing to go into your, like, 
your creepy old PTSD, you know, veteran, uh, sort of guy that like lives there and they're going to go into this little, like his hate hole underground where he's got, you know, yeah. M1 Garens and homemade knives on the walls. Like, yeah, actually, honestly, now that I put it that way, it actually kind of sounds like a place that I would actually want to go have a, Look, have a party with you guys. You know, that would be kind of fun. Both <laughs> things can be true. I wanted to attend that party, but I also think he's like being insanely patriarchal and psychotic. I mean, I even <laughs> yeah. got the feeling that he was like, you can't go over to your friend's house because you're going to get raped. You know, that was like what again, like he's just yeah. like, you go anywhere. Yeah, you're done for. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that. Yeah, that that sort of attitude uh, permeates the film, you know, and it's not tempered with anything, you know, like the 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 sequences between him and his family are sort of like brief and unconvincing. And so you're just left with this like husk of of a man and character, you know, (laughs) crossing the border with purpose to commit like six me lies uh, in this fucking film, you know, there's so much fear in both films, too. (laughs) I mean, thinking about Rambo's fear of Mexico, thinking about what his daughter, what could happen to his daughter when she goes down there and those fears are so he's just like spiraling in that fear and the fear in tong obviously feels so much more real but the way it finds itself illustrated on screen is so remarkable and something i wasn't expecting like it's so both haunting and beautiful at the same time to be able to see children who are laughing and enjoying each other's company throughout all of this i mean there's so much so much stuff with kids throughout much of the film it seems like one of his main sources of interest and i mean to i hate to jump ahead straight to the end but there is just a shot i'll never forget the children playing peekaboo together while you can hear the sounds of bombs going off in the distance and the mother is just it's all of her strength is just sitting there and not being in total panic mode right but these kids are keeping themselves entertained and these noises are just something that they've suddenly gotten used to which is so tragic and yet there is still life there there's something growing there's still a sibling bond and that's not how ramble would have <laughs> no see that's the that thing. situation it's you know what we're treated to in tong is a a, a gorgeous glimpse into like stoicism you know the the sort of like best Mm -hmm. aspects of like almost like stoic philosophy of these people who are facing arguably like the the worst experience of their lives you know and probably like anybody's lives of 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 being caught in the 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 meat grinder of a fucking conflict that you didn't start being completely displaced losing loved ones not just losing them in your journey but but people you know and love being killed for no other reason than the fact that they just like you know lived in that area right just just horrible things and dealing with it as best they can as gracefully as they can uh and and rambo is is being presented as as this sort of like stoic warrior and yet as you both have pointed out he is he is just 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 two ticks away from going completely psychopathically you know unhinged at any moment i mean he is falling apart 
at all points. And yet they're trying to present him as sort of like this, this, this figure of strength, of inner strength. Look at all the horrors that he's dealt with and how well he deals with them, how he just swallows it up, how he buries it in his tunnels, you know? And it's like, no, 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 no. Right. This guy is, 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 he's lost it. Uh, a long time he's ago. He's weak. Yeah, he's very weak. The f- the film, in a way, is sort of a depiction of just a weak man who succumbs to his most like horrible impulses and just instincts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like yeah. like Ethan Edwards. Yeah, right. And it's funny that we mentioned how banal so much of Last Blood is. And on the flip side, I was so moved by how banal so many of the phone calls were in Tong where you'd think in the mass of chaos that they've all been thrust into, whenever they're calling loved ones, there's almost a routine to it. It doesn't feel like there is like seismic activity, that their whole world is crumbling around them. Like it does by implication, but at the same time, so much of their conversations are just like, oh yeah, I well, I've brought this blanket along. It's the same one we have at home or... They, they, they're going over like small details that are practical in order to just like get whatever they can get done on these phone calls, which they mention are not cheap. And there was so much beauty in that banality of that journey through the border of trying to get in touch with people and how the tragedy isn't something that's at the forefront of those conversations, but something that's just inherent in them. Well, I got the feeling that you know, Wang Bing was was trying his best not to make this film sort of like refugee porn. You know, I think that right. is like definitely something he's after, because if you also consider the time that this film was made, right, concurrent with Syria and all, all sorts of other things going on in the world, right, the quote unquote refugee crisis, um, I think he's deliberately trying to issue things that would yeah, be more sensationalist or sensationalized. And he's after uh, a banality that is real, right? I mean, he often is. And I think that's like one of the really interesting things about the film. And and one thing that I read in an interview that he talked about is he he was basically like, yeah, most of the footage I shot during the day, I decided just not to use. And he was like, wow. he was vague about why, Maybe it was too difficult. Maybe there was too much movement. Maybe very ugly things were happening. I don't know. But he said that, you know, a significant amount of this film takes place at night because that's, you know, when people, A, let their guard down, but also the Tang specifically have a sort of like fireside chat culture. That's what they do at night in the mountainous region of Myanmar. They light a fire and they talk for hours. And so, so much Mm -hmm. of the film is just people hanging out around a fire and then another group of people hanging out around a fire. Yeah. It's crazy that the most sensationalistic thing we see in Tong is the opening image of a woman being kicked by another man. That's the only moment of literal violence that is, I think displayed on the image. The rest are things happening in the background or things that are being discussed amongst people at these campfires. Well, it starts with a tent collapsing first. <laughs> but still, even there, there, there's destruction, and yes. then there's a moment of like violence between two human beings. Yeah, and I think to that end, for me, it's, it's what I found so, so powerful 
um, about the film, not just visually, because certainly like the, the night, uh, photography is, is like breathtaking, um, in the way it is able to, uh, encapsulate the spirit of these people and what they're going through. You know what I mean? There's that amazing, mm -hmm. there's that amazing shot, I guess you would call it sort of sequence, I guess, but you know, where there is at, at a certain point, a group of people talking and, and just sort of, you know, talking about the day, trying to get in touch with loved ones over the phone. Um, and there's just a solitary candle that, is sort of illuminating this group of people. And at various points, certain people get up to shield the flame as the wind is, is just about to extinguish that, that only that single source of light that is, is illuminating these people. And, and man, that, that moment watching that candle nearly blown out was, was more, dramatic to me than, than really like anything in last blood. Like I was on the edge of my seat. Yeah. You know, tense wondering what was going to happen, you know, and, and, and looking at the stakes there, I thought the stakes were, were so much higher in that moment in Tong than, than like, you know, Rambo grabbing his knife and, and trying to dispatch a group of cartel, you know, Sicarios or whatever in, in Mexico. Yeah. And he takes it even a little bit further with that candle too. in those moments of just pure poetry that you find in reality that I'm sure when a documentary filmmaker comes across it, all they can think of is dear God, like I have to make sure that this is captured perfectly. I'd hate to lose it. And because there's one of those people who does shield the candle is a woman who speaks in sign language um, she isn't able to actually speak to anybody directly in the film. And she goes back and forth between signing to the few people in the camp that can understand her and then also lowering her hand to make sure that that candle doesn't go out. And we do have a, an extreme close-up of her hand cupping that flame. And I was thinking about Stanley Kubrick, you know, wanting Barry Lyndon to be lit only with candlelight. Here's Wang Bing shooting a sequence that is lit literally by a single candle. And any time there was just a brief gust of wind, it was as if all the light from the image just evaporated and slowly came back. It was unbelievable how sensitive that digital camera was in order to kind of fill the frame with that orange glow of this single candle. It was just, yeah, it was beautiful. I teared up. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of fire in the filmography of, of Wang Bing going all the way back to the to the smelting plants or the uh, yeah. various cooking fires of Three Sisters. And I was, I was trying to look up stuff about this movie and I found that there's like a, a Tom Anderson uh, essay about Three Sisters. Uh, and he quotes Jean-Marie Straub. Films have no, have no interest unless one finds something that burns somewhere within the shot. And then he goes on to say, in regards to Wang Bing, in many shots, this is true in the most literal sense. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh my God, because yeah, like I would say like 70% of this movie is like people around fire in the daytime cooking or at night, uh, whether it's a candle or a fire started. And that's really like the, the meat uh, of this movie. I mean, 
You know, it's funny because you sort of brought this up earlier where you were talking about uh, Wang Bing trying to avoid making sort of, you know, refugee porn, I think is the way you put it. Uh, and and I, I was like watching a lot of this stuff and just their their routines and, and their daily life. And I was I was thinking about how much of it is. I mean, it is it is the essence of survival, like what they're going through in this journey with nothing, you know, with only what they're able to carry or scrounge from the world around them. Earning the sugar canes along the way. Right. And, and, you know, how important fire is, especially if you are sleeping outside in, in rugged terrain with unpredictable weather. And it's so funny to think about, you know, how much media in the first world is 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 sort of rooted in making survival a spectacle you know and something that we can mm -hmm. we can root for you know i have a lot of friends who are obsessed with that show alone yep. you know M my girlfriend hillary loves fucking loves watching survivor oh, yeah. you know and like in america and I guess other areas of the first world, you know, it's like we, we make these things into competition shows. You can win a million dollars if you, if you subsist on raw coconut and rice for a month and, and, and every now and then win in a challenge, a meal from Applebee's or whatever, you know, like it is so kind of deranged how much we then fantasize about it. And people who are like, it's my dream to be on this show. It's my fucking dream to be here on this like deserted island trying to make fire. And like, man, I saw this fucked up thing at the end when they got down to the final three or four, there's a making fire challenge. And like the contestants talk about how it's like, I practiced so much to get on the show just so that when I get down to the one-on-one -on -one fire making challenge, you know, like I can nail it. And I'm like, you have no fucking idea what it actually means to really need to make fire, you know, or right. in a more twisted way, you willingly subjected yourself to this thing that if you talk to any of the people in Tong, they would they they couldn't possibly understand why you would ever want to subject yourself to this scenario, you know? It really did like hit me while I was watching it like how fucked up it is that we really do like fetishize survival and not just in like those kind of reality shows but in so much like post-apocalyptic media that is so, so popular here. You know, the idea of us being like, wow, imagine if I didn't have the internet, man, my life would actually be kind of better if you think about it. You know, people in The Walking Dead, they, they've learned to, to really connect to the things that matter, you know? And it's like, no, talk to the people in Tong. They're going to be like, you're out of your fucking gourd if you think that there's something <laughs> like ascetic in any of this. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love this idea of, of the fetishization of survival because I also think that Last Blood involves, as we've discussed in terms of its boomer fantasy, a certain amount of fetishization of the boomer man heading into Mexico and causing chaos in order to like save pure woman, right? And the, the film definitely indulges in that fantasy because, you know, eventually the daughter does die. When Rambo first goes down to try and save her, the cartel or these sex traffickers do capture him and then they say they're going to make a lesson out of him by drugging this woman and you know scarring her and he when he rescues her she she doesn't make it and 
then that begins, you know, his big his big spree, essentially, the, the violent chunk of this movie. The blood rage. And thinking about the way that that blood rage and that rampage in general is fetishized, it actually really made me think about the ending of the Cormac McCarthy Border Trilogy. And I wanted to read this brief passage at the end of Cities of the Plain. And so I read this immediately after watching Last Blood. And I couldn't help but thinking like, oh my God, it's as if the character in this film is maybe speaking to John Rambo. So just to briefly say at the end of Cities of the Plain, a character has to return to Mexico because the woman he fell in love with and was going to marry was a sex worker and she's murdered by the pimps. The end of the book is a knife fight confrontation between this man and the pimp. The pimp is named Eduardo. And Eduardo refers to one of the characters in this book as the suitor. That's who he keeps referring to John Grady in the book as. So uh, let me just find the spot here really quickly. It says, do you know what my name is, farm boy? Do you know my name? He turned his back on the boy and walked slowly away. He addressed the knight. In his dying, perhaps, the suitor will see that it was his hunger for mysteries that has undone him. Whores, superstition, finally death. For that is what has brought you here. That is what you were seeking. He turned back. He passed the blade before him again in that slow, scythe-like gesture, and he looked questioningly at the boy, as if he might answer at last. That is what has brought you here, and what will always bring you here. Your kind cannot bear that the world be ordinary, that it contain nothing save what stands before one. But the Mexican world is a world of adornment only, and underneath it is very plain indeed. While your world, he passed the blade back and forth like a shuttle through a loom, your world totters upon an unspoken labyrinth of questions, and we will devour you, my friend you and your pale empire. <laughs> and I was thinking about these words from the pimp Eduardo in Cities of the Plain and imagining him in a knife fight with, with John Rambo because, you know, Hugo, the main uh, member of this cartel that Rambo confronts at the end of the film doesn't really get a chance to speak for himself, though I'd like to think that maybe he might have said something like that to John Rambo, had he had the opportunity. This man who who sees the world in, in this very specific way, this boomer fantasy of all these questions about Mexico, all these paths that lead to just death and destruction, and no, of course you can't cross the border. Like, you'll just be torn to shreds. Mexico will eat you up. And yeah, I couldn't help but think about, too, even then connecting it with Tong, the, the idea of the ordinary, that like you refuse to see the world as it is. You have to construct this fantasy. You have to have this either fetishization of survival or this fetishization of your superiority over this country across the border. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's also then Rambo, you know, has its cake and eats it too because he also constructs not just this fantasy, but the reality of a, like, the perfect siege defense, mm -hmm. uh, which makes up like the last third of the film where it's not enough 
for him to go to Mexico and murder like 35 people. But he then is like, well, clearly they're going to now invade the United States and attack my ranch, right? Mm -hmm. And so the whole, yeah, it's, you know, from the cartel's perspective, it's a commando raid. But from Rambo's perspective, (laughs) it is obviously like, you know, his ingenious... Uh, survivalist, lone survivalist instincts and wherewithal. Uh, I mean, it's like there's a montage sequence of him constructing this like palace of death and it's like with the same enthusiasm as a Rocky montage, you know? And he's like setting up claymores and fire and like, Mm -hmm. oh my God. And Ryan, for you, you know, who has admitted you don't really know Rambo, you don't really understand Rambo. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, that is the essence of his character. If there is a, a, a thing you can expect also in all of his films, it's like the moment when he does go into like Rambo mode. Yeah. Like, and, and specifically from the idea of being like, okay, I don't just get a machine gun, even though he does use a machine gun quite a bit, but it's also all the sort of like improvised death traps that he yep. creates, you know, right. Rambo has said, uh, in one of the movies, I think it's Rambo, First Blood Part Two, when uh, you know he gets together with all the, the CIA and they're talking about all the new technology that he can utilize. Rambo says, well, I've always thought the best weapon is the mind. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, you know, is why you have to have those moments where he uses, you know, sort of primitive weapons at certain points. You know, I mean, Rambo uses right. a knife it's again funny that you bring up that passage because Rambo's like weapon of choice is actually a knife more than it is, right. you know, heavy weapons and machine guns and that sort of thing. Uh, he's, which is why, again, he's always been like, like I said in my intro, this sort of, yeah, more of like a, a, a figure from like a slasher film than, than, you know, like John Wayne in the, the sands of Iwo Jima. I mean, at the end of it, it's usually going to come down to Rambo uh, gutting someone, decapitating someone, cutting out their heart or something like that, you know? Uh, it is a, a again, the sort of like fetishization of of, of survival skills, of, of yeah. rugged individualism. It's the pale empire wish fulfillment, as Corbin McCarthy essentially addresses. And on the flip side, there are a, a shitload of knives in Tong. But they are used almost exclusively to cut sugar cane. Uh, but almost every person walking around in this movie has like a huge knife uh, on their belt in the back because Lord knows what they need to do on a minute by minute basis, you know, moving from refugee camp to refugee camp. People are just hacking stuff up, yeah. hacking bamboo. Yeah, to make like giant bongs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I oh. loved those. Those are insane. I need that just huge bamboo bong. Just like. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a great moment where there's like even a guy just sort of walking by this group. And, and I think like. You know, one of the, the the older women like says to him in passing, like, boy, that's a really long knife you got there, you know? And the guy kind of looks at her with like, you know, a big smile on his face and he's like, Oh yeah, you know. But it's like <laughs> it, it's sort of like, well, yeah, for for practical purposes, you know. But if you think about Rambo's knives, 
you know, people often remark about how long his knives are as well, how impressive his blades are, but it comes off as this weird sort of like compensation if you think about it. You know, this guy in Tong is almost embarrassed by like yeah. how long his knife is. Because it's like the guy with the oxen too, right? Yeah. Like, you know, he's got a lot of shit to do like with his animals and with this like, you know, going through this terrain. Yeah. It's like Rambo, you know, like, boy, what's 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 really going on there with all these long knives you use to penetrate people, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Man, th- that Rambo death house is so crazy, too, because, and I get that they're all like this. Again, my memory of Rambo 4 was that it is like this final destination, perfect death trap moment after moment. But it is crazy, thinking about it as wish fulfillment, how every single trap he sets up works exactly yeah, how he anticipates it to <laughs> it's like maybe what 25 dudes that show up and every single one of them hits every single trap that was shown to us it is oh, like yeah. perfectly displayed perfectly arranged yeah. he knew it beat for beat where they were going to be and what he was going to do when they were there and not a single one of the cartel guys noticed anything, yeah. you know, the whole time. Right. I mean, again, like this movie cuts corners in the worst ways. Like even for me, I was like going into it. I was like, maybe I'll enjoy it as a genre thing. But like, no, <laughs> they cut every corner. It's like, like I said earlier, he's just in Mexico. He found her. Okay. Uh, and then he goes back and, and it's like everything he does takes no effort and no time, and he's just wherever he wants, whenever he wants. Like, I just I just can't drive with that, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's just the kind of guy that if he's a little bit upset too, he can just drive his pickup truck through a flimsy border fence, you know? <laughs> he can just get things done on his own time the way he wants to. And that is also why, you know, and I, again, I'm not trying to come to this movie's defense. <laughs> I, I didn't pick this movie, you know, from the standpoint of, as I have picked other sort of, you know, genre schlock to say, no, no, there's some redeeming qualities here. Like there's very, very, very little uh, redeeming material in this film. But I would say, you know, for a lot of the people who have piled on the movie and said, oh, it's this, you know, it's this Trumpian fantasy. It's, you know, it's all about, you know, Donald Trump's political platform and specifically about the border. You know, some people have pointed out that there is a shot, a very prominent shot in the film at a certain point of the border wall that that, you know, Mm -hmm. Trump was building. And, you know, again, it's if it is this statement about the necessity of the wall, if that's what this film is supposed to be like, boy, if we had the wall, none of this would have happened. That's that's also to the point of like cutting corners, I guess, like not really true, because when the criminals, when these guys do decide finally that like, all right, let's go assault this guy's farm. They just like open a trap door, go into one of their own tunnels and just like immediately pop up on the other side of the border. So, and have a full fleet of trucks waiting for them. Right. So, so it's not even that like, if we had Trump's wall, those guys wouldn't yeah, have gotten nothing across. stopping them. Right. No, exactly. <laughs> like if anything, it's like this movie is just about like, What's the point of having a border wall? Because any threat can get through it, whether it's just like a guy in a pickup truck or yeah, a bunch of Sicarios like going through some tunnels. Like (laughs) the wall is pointless in this movie. It's true. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the kids in Tong, but I I couldn't come up with a transition. (laughs) 
Well, there are maybe. no children in Rambo: Last Blood. <laughs> well, no, and I was gonna say, I was gonna say too, like to your, to your, like kind of like offend the, the points of like the, the the cutting corners that like are, are super offensive. Even is like how his daughter gets sort of kidnapped, which is like when she goes to Mexico, she goes to visit a a, a lifelong friend of hers who, because like Rambo's surrogate daughter is just this like virginal beauty. You know, she's wearing like a sundress. She's very clean cut. She's going to college. And when she goes to Mexico to visit her lifelong friend, she is depicted as basically just like a, the living embodiment of like a brat style where she's got this like total like chola like makeup on you know she yeah. she really does look like one of those like those homies figures you'd get from the vending machines i mean yeah. it's like an offensive portrayal of of that which is like okay whatever they're trying to make a point that she's a mexican girl i guess but it's also the fact that that it's she who sells out her friend, who takes her lifelong friend and just delivers her up to the Sicarios for what we discover was basically a gold bracelet that this girl was wearing. Like, that's what she wanted. You know, it's like, these Mexicans, all they want is gold. That's all they care about. You know, they'll sell out your, you'll sell your best friend out for a bobble or whatever, you know, for a trinket. I mean, like, it's, it's like horrifying the, the implication there yeah. of, of not just like the adults, but also like the youth, like there's no hope anywhere. Like everyone is totally fucked, you know, from one generation to the next. <laughs> As Rambo would say, why are you getting so mad? Because you don't know how bad it is. I know how black a man's heart can be. There's nothing good out there, Gabriel. Yeah. It's only a vision of darkness, this movie. Because then we also visit Gabriella's da real dad, who's just the worst, oh my God. the worst person in the world, Jesus. right? Who's just like, fuck off. I don't know you, basically, yeah. to his daughter uh, and is like excessively cruel uh, about it. Uh, again, there's, yeah, there's, there's just no hope. There's just no light anywhere. No, it's, it's one of the most like <laughs> despairing films I've, I've ever seen, you know? And again, on the flip side, it's like, you look at people in a real crisis, not a manufactured crisis for fucking Hollywood to, to, to resurrect this, this geriatric figure of America's past glory or whatever. Right. But people who are in a real life or death struggle. And what do you see in Wong Bing's film? You see people taking care of one another. You see actually that crisis and again, this isn't in some weird way meant to say that like crisis is good, okay? But I'm just saying like Wang Bing chooses to show what's best in humanity. That often mm -hmm. in the worst moments, in the worst places on earth, that's where you're going to find generosity. That's where you're going to find people taking care of one another. In fucking Rambo, everybody sells out one another for like the slightest sense of of advancement of any kind you know it is like the ultimate like a uh, like fucked up capitalistic like american vision of like the world again talking about the ideology from earlier marsh because yeah everyone's a goddamn mercenary everyone's in it for themselves the world is hopelessly broken and all we can do is like shut ourselves up in our little like home alone death traps and, and try to fight off like everybody that's coming to get our daughters or our gold bracelets or whatever the fuck, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The generosity that's on display in Tong is so beautiful. And 
I can't help but think so much of that comes from the intimacy he was able to create, obviously, as a filmmaker being there, just living with them. I was wondering, Marsh, not to put you on the spot, but did you read anything about the production? Like, did he actually like sleep and live with them for the majority of shooting it was he living in one of those nearby towns do you know like what the I think he was, was like? just he was just with them I don't I don't know he, yeah he you know sometimes he'll have five six people on his cruise but sometimes it's just him and sometimes it's two three people so uh, I'm not entirely sure but he said he shot a month um, but you know there is actually an interesting aspect of it is that he does not uh, speak their language, um, but most everyone mm. in the in the camps, he said, spoke Chinese to an extent because there's just so much overlap and so much like cultural, um, you know, whatever. It's just the Chinese language is everywhere, right? Um, so he was yeah. able to communicate enough, but a, a lot of the time, he at least at the time of filming, like didn't really know what was being what was being said. Uh, not that wow. necessarily he makes the kinds of films that hinge on uh, lines or anything like that. Yeah, he's not like doing slow zooms when someone's saying something very tender. You know, <laughs> he's always this like taking a step back and making sure he's not invading. I them. mean, and really too, like it's it's an off-screen sound epic as well because. Mm -hmm. a lot of what we hear we don't see and we hear a lot beyond dialogue we hear children playing and giggling and coughing and screaming at all hours of the day and night we hear people yes yeah, smoking smoking and coughing uh, in the background throughout this film we hear bombs in the distance we hear the wind whipping off everything in these camps like he really gives you that like extra sonic you know texture in this film that's just so fucking dense you know like it, it really is a like a lot of his films it's very liberating to watch because you never know what to look at you know to your point about the kids earlier ryan it's like they're like a whole textural layer of the film that like doesn't really even mm. speak that much you know but they're everywhere and like their creativity and their like playing on all this just like shit was really beautiful and yet it's often not even the focal point of a particular scene or sequence, right? It's maybe off in the corner of the frame. And so it is very like, oh my God, like what do I look at? What do I listen to? You know, kind of feeling. Yeah, you get to see like both the kids utilizing all of their energy and marveling at the fact that they have so much energy amidst all this chaos, whether they're giving each other piggyback rides or, but then yeah, you also have them you, you see the toll it takes on them, whether it's the middle of the night and you've got the kids sort of just loafing on the ground, eating this little bag of Cheetos or whatever, you know, just like the way a kid would after having an exhausting day and one that is sometimes without a lot of peace. You know, there's just so much activity. There's only so much energy and sugar a kid can use to, to keep themselves activated and engaged, but they still manage to throughout so much of it. And that's what's mm -hmm. so liberating about it. Yeah, it's an incredibly immersive experience. Um, you you really do feel as if you are there, you know? And like you said, you, mm -hmm. you sort of lose yourself in those moments of of displacement, you know, of, of constantly sort of wondering where you are, where everyone else is, how, how far from 
you know, sanctuary are we? Is that thunder or artillery rumbling closer and closer in the background? I mean, it's it's a, a total like envelopment of like your senses and your your sense of place, your sense of being. You find yourself lost, um, you know, on this odyssey with these people. Whereas again, like in the mm-hmm. case of like fucking Rambo, it's like from the get go, you can't help but know you're watching something that is just totally engineered, just just a fucking like movie. And I use that word in this case, like pejoratively, like this is, right. you know, from the fucking first title card you see where it's Rocky Bo- Balboa Productions or whatever, this new <laughs> film studio that he says he's, you know, built in his, in his later age, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, it's just so artificial that it's, it's such an affront, like to, to your sense of, of, of reality, you know? And, and again, like a lot of times we go for something like Rambo because we want to, to, to sort of like drift away from, from the real. But in this case, it's like, I feel like we've, we've drifted far, far, far too, too much from any sense of, of like, God, like uh, connection to, to the world in which we live that, that it, it really is like just insulting at times, you know? Yeah. The, with the extreme opposite being that enriching moment when they're sitting by the campfire, unbelievably fatigued and exhausted. And speaking of that, and yet someone puts on a lovely song on the radio. That's like super high energy, like a pop song. And one of the women at the camp says, Oh, I can't, I can't go to sleep when we got music like this. This is going to keep me up, you know, but she says it with such joy, right? Like here in this moment, they're taken away a little bit from the reality of the pain and the fatigue that they're dealing with there. But it's still something that is like keeping them present and active with each other. It's a moment of art being a source of enrichment for them to kind of just to help them endure. Yeah. When you've got like six kids strapped to you in a jungle all day, uh, you're going to fucking, you're going to need to, you're going to need something, you know? I mean, that's actually like just one of the small marvels of the film to me is, uh, all the, just the little children strapped on the adults and the kids and just like all that bullshit, you know, like there's one really in depth kind of like recounting that happens to like halfway into the movie where a woman's basically describing having to like haul someone's mother across the border and just like the most horrific fashion being basically like, yeah, this woman like almost got us killed because like we were dragging her over this mountain, you know, I mean, just, I don't know where I was going with that, but just, yeah, (laughs) I, I know where I know where to go with that. I mean, like, and this is what really, really struck me in watching this, like as, very, as we've said, a very, very cursed double feature, maybe 
the most cursed double feature, you know, yeah. we've 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 really yeah. done so far. But but when I watched this film, when I was like getting towards the end of of Tong, I was looking at these people and I was thinking, that is strength. That is toughness. You know, these women lugging children up this fucking mountain, you know, while at other points cutting down sugar cane, you know, like just all the things that these people are going through, sleeping outside, giving away their portions of food to the younger ones, the the very old people, the, the ancient people going up the side of these these precarious like mountain roads that are just just mud and muck and and wearing sandals and and just 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 going through all these abject horrors i was thinking that is fucking strength that is fucking toughness and so it's 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 on a certain level perfect to pair it up with sylvester stallone yeah who is in like america and hollywood's you know history this this guy who's always been presented as the figure of ultimate strength in America. You know, who is tougher than Rocky? Who's tougher than Rambo, you know? And and if you think about, like, the heyday of guys like Stallone and Schwarzenegger, they were deployed around the world to be these, like, symbols of American superiority, you know? Like, we won the Cold War not because of missiles, but because of muscles, Right. That's what we did. And look at these guys, you know, and they get, you know, many times you get knocked down, it's getting up or whatever his buck and Rocky bullshit is. You know, that's what toughness is. And like, look at Stallone. Look at this guy. He got busted for a suitcase full of steroids to try to maintain this artificial physique of his that is nothing other than this sort of image, this image that he's desperately trying to portray to the world, this totally artificial image, you know what I mean? And it's like, what even is this now? It's this desperate attempt to try to hold on in a very insecure way to some legacy of toughness, of strength, of machismo, of bravado. And yet it comes off to me like more pathetic than anything else. I mean, his, his thing at the ending, when he's sitting on his fucking porch in his little fucking rocking chair, you know? And again, this other, like, kind of Eastwood-esque, this Ford-esque moment, yeah. you know? Where he's, after all this carnage, just, just a man who just wants to be on his porch, just rocking there, you know? He has this horrible voiceover where he sounds like a fucking zombie. I've lived in a world of death. I tried to come home but I never really arrived. A part of my mind and soul got lost along the way. But my heart was still here, where I was born, where I would defend to the end. The only family I've ever known the only home I've ever known. All the ones I've loved are now ghosts. But I will fight to keep their memories alive forever. You know, he does that whole shit. And I was thinking, like, 
yeah, this is the real Stallone right here. Like how sad he is, how scared he is of the fact that he isn't Rocky, that he isn't Rambo, that it all was manufactured and it was created. And let's be honest, I mean, if you really look at the legacy of this movie, like it's 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 journey to even being made, he kind of got bullied into making this and at points was like, I don't want to make it. Rambo's done. I'm done with Rambo. I'm done with the character. But then he resurrected it because he was scared, because he's getting old, because he's facing death, because he wants to be tough. He still wants to be strong. He wants to be tough and strong forever. That's why he went and made all those expendable movies with all those 80s action, like, retirees to try to be like, we still got it. We still got it. You know, like, this isn't toughness. This isn't strength. This is the epitome of weakness. And I think that's something you said earlier, but but really beyond even the character, this is a weakness deeply embedded within a very, very frightened man. Yeah, Rambo Last Blood is the weakness of the Pale Empire. And Tong is the kind of strength where we have a mother telling her children, I carried you on my back for miles go to bed. (laughs) Yeah. And I do, you know, in, in that light, I want to address, you know, like the, the one kind of like big formal, uh, sort of thing that happens in, in Tong, which, you know, like we said, for the most part, we're sort of just like floating around, you know, uh, from place to place. But all of the sudden, you know, we are like back to the Myanmar border, right? As we'd been following people, we'd sort of been getting deeper into China and people are looking for work and things like that. And this is the the part where in the production, he took a break and then came back and just found new people. And so what's like really interesting then is the last 30 plus minutes of, of Tang are this new group of people who just left, Right. We've been following this this other group of people for a month and we're back to where we started. And they even talk like the two guys are like, we fucking should we should have left earlier, man. Like people were calling and our family was saying we were alarmist, but like we should have left earlier. And they're like freaking out. And again, there's so much resolve in these people. And then it's like we start the journey all over again. And a really, a really kind of extra textual thing I found to be fascinating is that, of course, you know, this isn't the first time the Tang people have had to uh, sort of migrate or flee in times of war. And in fact, they'd already done so very recently in 2008 during the conflict depicted in Rambo 4. Yeah. There was a huge refugee crisis in Yunnan because of what was going on in the background of Rambo 4. And I guess that's ultimately, you know, uh, the the only interesting connection, right, is... And Rambo didn't do shit about it. Well, <laughs> he, was, he was battling, you know, the state security forces, which is who essentially everyone is fleeing from, yes. right, you know? But I, I would also point out that, that whatever he did there in Rambo 4 was incidental because he really, <laughs> he really went on that mission to rescue the Christian merc- uh, missionaries. Mm. That's what kind of, like, propelled him. It wasn't the suffering of... The people of Myanmar. It was that some blonde lady got abducted by the state security forces, and he had to go get her. You know? Damn. But yeah, you know, I mean, because that's the thing. Stallone has said he has seen these films as like a means of like addressing real world issues. You know, which is what's always so fucked up about them. Because 
ultimately, again, they, they do nothing. They do nothing to alleviate suffering, and they do nothing to actually change the world, which is by creating empathy, you know? That's what helps us around this world start to, to, to care for one another. And Rambo's movies just make you fucking hate more. They just make you fucking hate more. They're, 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 they're designed to do that, to hate the Russians, to hate the Vietnamese, to hate the, 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 the communists, wherever we find them, to, to just simply hate whoever we have to cut through at that particular moment. The people are always merely there as sort of, you know, uh, spectators or, or worse, you know, props, really. Fuck you, Rambo, you fucking piece of shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, Rambo sucks. <laughs> All this shit is because of you. I should have broke your fucking neck 10 years ago. Well, I'm glad that the, the tongue didn't have to deal with with John Rambo. I'm glad that they got Wang Bing sent their way, at the very least. It does occur to me after what you said, (laughs) Andy, about, you know, about helping in the world, right? You know, there were maybe a few times where I felt that Wang Bing could have helped carry some of that rice, you know? (laughs) Um, I'll be honest, you know, because it is such, like, a fucked-up situation. There is, and this is not uncommon. You see this, I think, in, in certain, you know, elements in some of his films where you're like, I'm uncomfortable, you know? Like, whether it's watching two guys fight in the locker room of a steel factory uh, in West of the Tracks or watch, like, borderline sort of, like, domestic abuse and bitter money, there is an element sometimes where you go, like, Wang, dude, like, should you stop filming, you know? Uh, And it's, you know, it's hard to lug a camera in the mud, too, but goddamn, you know, there's... There's a lot of struggle, uh, and film will always, I guess, uh, you know, make you feel a certain element of uncomfortableness with knowing those facts, you know? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say, though, too, because whenever he would have been helping, the camera wouldn't have been rolling. Right. So we we really don't actually know. He may have been helping a ton. He could have spent all fucking day just like building bamboo tents for all we know, you know? Exactly. Right. Again, and he, as it, you mentioned, he didn't use a ton of the footage from the day. Maybe it's because he was too busy yeah. <laughs> helping. Could be. Could be. Well, God bless him. I'm still on the lookout for Wang Bing's Venmo. If anyone knows what it is, uh, I'd yeah. love to send a little donation his way. He is direct deposit, my man. He is someone I greatly admire. Yeah. And on the flip side, Stallone, retire, bitch. Yeah, <laughs> hang, yeah totally. Hang, hang You're done, up. old man. Hang it up, dude. I mean, again, <laughs> I, honestly, he's the quintessential boomer because, like, look what he's doing too. It's like. Move on, man. Retire. Let somebody else. Not let, gonna happen. Let the sub. But these guys are clinging to their goddamn jobs. You know they're gonna die out there. He's Fly gonna, into Taiwan and <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna fucking die out there. Move on, bitch. Give it up. <laughs> <laughs> the borderlands, Ryan. Hope we uh, hope we delivered for you. <laughs> you certainly did. I mean, you know, I was certainly obviously a bit bummed when I saw that that Rambo was was on the menu. But I got to say, you know, having encountered it, uh, like I hated the movie, obviously, but it was really interesting watching Rambo while reading Cities of the Plain, the Cormac McCarthy novel, um, and thinking about just, yeah, Rambo as this totally failed 
Cormac McCarthy adaptation, thinking that they understood an element of that spirit and just missing the mark entirely. You know, Tong actually is almost a better Cormac McCarthy adaptation because it feels like a film that is almost mythical at times or reckoning with the gods and and thinking about our place and thinking about the way the human individual perseveres um in the face of just brutality yeah it's like the it's it's like the road that's part of the reason why i was like thinking about post-apocalyptic apocalyptic films because like we were mentioning the the what i think is a disastrous adaptation of cormac mccarthy's the road and i was like this feels much more like the road, the novel, than the movie did with Viggo Mortensen. What do they constantly say? We're keeping the fire in the road? Isn't right. that the, the refrain right. with his son? Like, That's we're the true. ones who keep the fire. And just the same way that the, the people in Tong did. They were constantly keeping the fire in a very, very, very dark world. Yeah, I mean, I feel like one of the central questions of Cormac McCarthy's works, too, is just how do we reckon with the fact of the brutality in the world and trying to understand how there can be beauty, how we find our place in it, how we narrativize our own lives. And I think that Tong actually does address some of those questions. How do we find the time to love one another and care for one another when there is such like despairing darkness all around us? And I think that Rambo's reaction uh, is much less fruitful and in a path that I, I, I hope people never go down, <laughs> that one of just leaning into that darkness and instead maybe we can see the, the beauty that is present in Tong. Sounds like it's time to rewatch The Counselor. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, thinking about border films too, the Tong actually reminded me, I was trying to think like, what are some films set along borderlands that, that I also like and... And the presence of children in Tong made me think of a film that's set on the border between Turkey and Iraq called Turtles Can Fly from 2004. It is a Kurdish film, and I would I'd highly re- recommend people check it out. Baman Gobadi is the filmmaker, and it primarily follows some children who, who live along the border and are tasked with clearing minefields as they're also anticipating the U.S. invasion of Iraq. It's a, it's a really beautiful and powerful film. It's obviously troubling and difficult to watch at times. Um, for memory serves, I think a lot of the people that are in it are just people who did live along the border, and there are some people who were maimed from trying to clear these minefields, but it is something that you see a lot of beauty sort of persevere through this darkness. So I would, uh, you know, I guess a lot of borderland films are typically pretty intense (laughs) when you think about it, the necessity to have to cross a border, you know, usually is the result of something pretty cataclysmic, um, or at least can be. Um, but still, I think, I think the film turtles can fly is, uh, one everyone should, should check out. Thank you. Well, it was, yeah, it was, Go ahead. Yeah, it was me. <laughs> yeah, it was. So that, yeah, th- thank you both. Uh, what a hellish road we we all walked down together. Um, but I'm excited to see what road that we'll be we'll be traversing next week, Marsh. It's you're up next. So what's the topic? Well, I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be calling into the Gauntlet Studios remote next weekend because I'm gonna be at the lake with my family and i'm gonna be kicking it lakeside you know taking pontoon cruises and of course i'm gonna be thinking of you guys uh and i wanted you to bring me movies 
on the lake or at the lake or however you want to conceive of it, bring me films that deal with lakes and I'll... Uh, I'll feel that vibe out next week when I'm kicking it at Lake Tippy Canoe. Well, I'm, I'm I'm excited to to live out my dreams of living on the lake house uh, through through whatever film I find for you. I hope it'll hope it'll be a relaxing one. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail Thanks, everyone. ตาวดาเดนะเออสาวอะไรตัวมึงมึงก็ทําหมดแล้วแต่กูนี่ไงอ่ะบิเฮาเลยสมัยใต้กูบิเฮาเลยสมัยใต้กูบิเฮาเล